Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 164 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And this episode, the meat of it is going to be my conversation with Brett Vinat of the Excellent School Sucks Podcast, which occurred at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest of 2018. If memory serves, I'm pretty sure this conversation took place on Sunday, and we were literally sitting in a picnic table in the middle of a clearing, and you can hear in the background birds chirping and even the occasional dog barking, that sort of thing. So it's really kind of cool. So if you've already caught this as an episode of School Sucks, you don't need to listen to it again unless you really, really want to. I think it's a very interesting conversation, and I think it's a good primer for those of you who have sometimes asked me about my sort of research methodology and that sort of thing. It's mostly Brett kind of interviewing me. So we talk a bit about my background, which you may or may not know much about, depending on exactly which episodes you've listened to of the DHP. And we get really uh, a lot into, and I find it interesting, and many of you may as well, the sort of nuts and bolts of kind of how I do research and how I try to put it together to make podcasts that are hopefully interesting and entertaining, but also informative. So I think it's a very interesting conversation. We talk about a bunch of other things as well. So like I said, if you're already a listener, a subscriber to the School Sucks podcast, then you've probably already heard this or may have already seen it in your feed. No reason to be redundant and listen to it again unless you just really want to. And if you're not a listener to the School Sucks podcast, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you, but you should get over there and check it out as soon as humanly possible. It's been on my short list of favorite podcasts for quite a while, actually since even a bit before I started this podcast. And I just want to say huge thanks to Brett for doing this with me. It was really cool not only to have a conversation with someone uh, whose work I've been following and uh, with great admiration for quite a while, but to do it in person and in such a cool venue, you know, outside at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest on a picnic table. I mean, that's just awesome. So I really enjoyed the conversation and I very much look forward to working more with Brett on some collaborations in the future. So without further ado, my conversation with Brett Vinat. CJ, welcome to School Sucks. Hey, it is great to be here. We are at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest meeting for the first time. Yes. Uh, I'm kind of a new listener to your Dangerous History podcast. I think it's awesome. I wish uh, I appreciate that. there were more alternative histories. I mean, there's no shortage of them, but I really like where you come from on your show. And uh, yeah. you're kind yeah. of a rare breed. 
I've well, I like to say I've got the market pretty much cornered when it comes to a history podcast that's from an anarchist sort of perspective. Yeah, you know there are lots of anarchist podcasts, mm-hmm. there are lots of history podcasts, but there is not a lot of places where that Venn diagram overlaps. So I kind of saw an, an opening, a market opening, right, and uh, jumped into it. So you are an actual college professor. That is correct. I, I am a, a full time uh, tenured. Professor of History. Indeed. And you've, it's been over a decade, right? You've been doing this? Teaching college history for 12 years. How did you develop these uh, philosophical beliefs in such a setting? Or did you bring them into that setting with you? Ah, the, the origin story question. Yes. It's, it, it's complicated. I came from basically a right-wing family mm-hmm. for the most part. Where'd you grow up? In South Florida, in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale All right. area. Yeah. And I, from pretty early on, started to have serious problems with that ideology. Yeah, sure. Um, and kind of two, two main things that I just couldn't go along with in that ideology. One of them was, at some point very young, I kind of realized that the war on drugs was bullshit. Okay. Like, that it's pretty messed up that you would throw someone in jail just for, you know, wanting to smoke some weed or whatever. It just, for some reason, I was probably 10 or 12, I was like, this is... This is just messed up. Right. And if you're not a law and order guy, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing that, that I just couldn't get, get on with in that is, in general, just the tendency towards, like, hardcore religion. Yeah. Um, that was something from very early on. I was just like, I don't. A lot of pressure to do it? Sort of stuff. Um, kind, of a, kind of an interesting situation. I, my parents divorced when I was very young. Mm. And so I had the. Switching back and forth between two households right. experience where, you know, I'd be a few week, a few days a week here, a few days a week there. And so I had, I had one household that was more strongly religious and one that was more still religious, but like more laid back and moderate about it. Yeah. But just from very early on, I wasn't buying it. Right. I wasn't buying it. I was just like, I just don't believe all this stuff is actually going on. And so I, how old are you at this point? That's hard to say. It's hard to say because it's sort of, a, I think, a gradual thing yeah. when you're in that situation, when you're, when you're raised in a belief system that you start to have doubts about. Sure. It's not like a, a quick like, oh, yesterday I thought all this made sense and today I woke up and realized I don't think all this is true. Yeah, it, it comes with a lot of doubt when it's like everything that you're surrounded by and you start to yeah. feel differently. It's a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a strange, gradual situation. And and actually, I think it, there's a lot of similarities and parallels for anybody who is both an atheist and an anarchist. There's a similar process of coming to that point of view. Like, it's very parallel where you start off with these these little little nagging things that you're not quite buying. Mm-hmm. And so I, I found, that at, least, at least for my personal case, there's a lot of similarities between leaving religion, religion, and leaving uh, the, the civil religion. Right, sure. And, and it's a similar thing where, where people kind of think there's something wrong with you. Oh, sure. When, when, you, leave, when you leave the group. Mm. So, but, but that was sort of a, a gradual process. And I would say by the time that I was going to college, um, I would describe where my thinking was as sort of conservatarian- Okay. Or, or maybe, maybe like mainstream, like LP type libertarian way of thinking. What were you using to kind of bolster that view or to help you confirm or strengthen 
these beliefs that you were developing? Like who who had your ear or your eyes? I guess if we're talking about authors at that point in your life. Oh, that that's hmm. Pretty early on, Ayn Rand, but Ayn Rand, I don't think was actually as big of an influence on me as a lot of libertarians, um, because right off the bat, I had problems with Ayn Rand too. Oh, of course, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, pretty early on, I could tell that there was this cultiness mm-hmm. about her and her followers and whatever, and that immediately put me off. But also, I'm one of these people, I just think that Ayn Rand is a terrible fiction writer. Uh, yeah, kind of flat characters. Yes. Yeah, sure. I found the same. Yeah, very, very simplistic, and everything's very didactic, and it's, it's just not good fiction. You know, mm. good good fiction, you need ambiguity, you need complex characters that have arcs. You can't have these, these wooden... Um, wooden wooden stereotype sort of things people who are they're they're just basically carriers of the philosophy i think that's the way that i've described it that's their job it's not really to yeah then they lack nuance that kind of thing wooden i like the wooden i've never heard that before i like that yeah 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 sort of cardboard cutout types but i don't know I, i remember reading some like vaguely mainstream ish libertarian stuff. Like I probably read road to serfdom sure, pretty yeah. young mm-hmm. and, and I was, I was a voracious reader from very early on and I will give my, my parents credit. My, my parents very much encouraged me to like self learn to self. Like they were, they were very encouraging. They would, they would, you know, take me to the library whenever I wanted to go and, mm-hmm. you know, either hang out there themselves or, or just leave me there. Right. Um, or, you know, and they were always happy to like buy me books in, in anything I was interested in. So, you know, I just read a lot of different stuff, and I realized like there were parts of the conservative way of looking at the world that that I still thought were okay. Mm-hmm. Like the overall skepticism about, you know, obviously in practice they don't do this consistently. <laughs> course, a lot of but, talk about it, yeah, right? But yeah, yeah, the the overall attitude of skepticism towards big government and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, you know, I, but but then it was a matter of over many many years working out the contradictions. Right. You know, uh, and then somewhere along the way, I, I finally, it's kind of, again, it's sort of a similar thing. Like where you, people who, who go from religion to no religion usually pass through this middle ground of kind of deism and like sort of vague, I think there's a supreme being. And then, you know, if they keep going down that path, eventually they get to the point where, yeah, I don't know if there's any of this stuff. Sure. And, and so it's just a similar thing with me uh, happened with politics. Did you, did you go have like an angry phase? You know, I mean, you talk about, okay, so you yeah. talk about atheism and anarchism. So yes. there's a lot of the the revelation that you have been given misinformation. And yes. not just given. Yes. Like, given is a very gentle word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you say your parents were open to your exploration, open to your independent study. Um, I, I'd say my parents were too, but mm-hmm. they were still the ones that were at one point, you know, making me go to church and not... In my case, anyway, we weren't having really critical conversations about the messaging that I would pick up in, Mm -hmm. like, Sunday school or church itself. Mm -hmm. So, and then, of course, all of the political stuff, um, for me, it was, like, post-college. So, I remember feeling really angry and, like, betrayed in in a way. Not necessarily by my parents, but just by – it was more vague than that, you know? Mm -hmm. But it was definitely – there was definitely an angry phase. I can yeah. still tap into it from time to time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I think I went through several, honestly. I think it <laughs> That's kind it. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it kind of, kind of came and went at different points, sort of as I reached different milestones. Right. And if, actually, if you listen to some of my earlier podcasts, because um, I've been doing the podcast for about four years now, mm-hmm. 
some of the earlier ones, and I think I've 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 seen a similar thing. I know you've been doing it a lot longer, but a similar evolution where some of my earlier podcasts I was more angry. Yeah. And then as time went on, simply having an outlet where I could say what I really wanted to say, there's a certain amount of catharsis and and decompression right. that happens. And so you're you're able to get more relaxed about it and 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 like still have these, you know, extreme beliefs that we have, but no longer be that that zealot, that yeah. fanatic, you know. I, I notice that with people who have like very few chances to externalize, you know, in any kind of performance way. Yep. <laughs> and before I started the show, it was uh yeah, zealot was a good word, you mm. know, and I made people uncomfortable and I yes. was very, very belligerent. And it's yeah, just like being yeah. able to turn the valve week after week, I think, was really therapeutic. It helped me yes. externalize a lot of that stuff. I said I, I got some comfort from saying like, OK, it's on record, right? Like it, <laughs> yeah. I can send somebody this if this topic comes right. up. And this is like that situation where the confrontation happened in the past isn't going to be like my only chance for somebody or a group of people to hear this information that yes. I feel so compelled to share. Yes, that, that sounds that sounds very, very similar to the process I went through. And somebody, I want to say it was Winston Churchill, but I could be wrong about that. Somebody once said that the definition of a fanatic is someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. Mm, exactly. So when you feel compelled to try and correct everybody around you. Right. And, and, and you haven't yet developed, for lack of a better term, the wisdom to kind of know when to just let things slide. Right. You know, that to, to realize like it's not my job to correct everyone else around me who I think is wrong. Right. And to sort of make peace with, you know, a certain percentage of people are just not at all amenable to to what you're saying. So uh, perhaps, I'm guessing, I'm going to guess here, as a contrast to this serenity that you've reached now, <laughs> what was college like? <laughs> what was being uh, a college student like? You know, I actually did all right in college, believe it or not. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you probably heard me mention it a little bit in my talk earlier. But I went to a small liberal arts college, and it was kind of old school in the sense of it was education the way you would think of liberal, liberal arts college, you know, generations ago, mm -hmm. where it's about taking a lot of courses in a variety of subjects and really getting that kind of well-rounded education where you're, you're learning different subjects and you're kind of making connections between things and you're just becoming sort of a, a versatile person mm -hmm. who is able to engage with a lot of different subjects. Right. So as an undergraduate, I mostly had a very positive experience in college. I had a lot of professors who really were what you would hope a professor would be as far as people who were open to students who challenged the course material or challenged even the professor's own interpretation, as long as you did it in an intelligent and, and thoughtful and, and, you know, civilized sort of way. Um, so I had, I had completely the opposite of, of the experience that you see in some of the, some of the elite schools today anyway. Um, and so I, I had professors that I could, I could in class express my like gradually radicalizing libertarian leanings and they were they were cool with it, even the ones who didn't agree with that at all. Right. So I, I, I was very lucky in that regard. Um, and then graduate school was, uh, was, a, was a little bit, a little bit more not up my alley. But even there, I was able to strategically kind of make what I wanted out of it. I Talk about that to, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's one thing I encourage anybody 
whether they're in obviously you have fewer options usually if you're like in the public school grade school system yeah but but even there you often have more options than people realize to kind of you know change things around a little bit at the margins at least to get better stuff out of it i had probably above average luck even in k through 12 it wasn't as bad for me as it is for a lot of people right and and it was a matter of i tested into gifted very early mm-hmm. and that meant that from literally from first grade on up, I was in a lot of gifted and advanced classes. Mm-hmm. And that is a different experience. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because oftentimes the teachers who are teaching those things are the more competent ones who are more enthusiastic and more creative and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I, a lot of people right. I've talked to have had that experience that they actually felt like they were being educated. Right. Yeah. 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 It was, it was certainly a cut above. Like there was a lot more options for 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 students to have some choice. I mean, you know, there's still within the limits of the system and whatever, but like a little bit more opportunity for like creative projects and you know a little bit more choice in what you wanted to learn about and you know w- within the limits obviously of, of the system overall. So I kind of did a similar thing in graduate school, where I was just very choosy about which professors I would take classes with, mm-hmm. and. You know, there were a few that I that I didn't really do my due diligence, and and I and I had a couple classes in graduate school that weren't great, but really a lot of them were pretty good. How would you vet somebody for something like that? Ah, um, <laughs> to, to, yeah, to kind of like ensure the best you can that you're going to have a positive experience. Right? And, yeah. Well, I mean, today we have things that we didn't have back then, like rate my rate professors. my professor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, you have to obviously take that with a grain of salt because sometimes it's sour grapes. Right. You know, right. students who they they were terrible and they think the professor should have gave them an A, even though they did terrible, you know, a terrible job and they're just going to, you know, you know, crap all over them. But you can certainly see trends with people who have a lot of rate my professor reviews. Oh, sure. But back in the day, it's, it sort of was a combination of word of mouth. Yeah. You know, once I knew other graduate students there, you kind of ask them like, hey, how so and so, whatever. And I guess I was already ahead of ahead of my time in having the sort of, I don't know, SJW radar that that someone like Jordan Peterson kind of talks about. Can I ask what like, year we're talking about here? Uh, graduate school, we're talking 2003 or 4 to 6. That was around when I started. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't make it to 2006. I dropped out before yeah, that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah but there, there you know there's just certain things. I don't know how it is in, in different subject areas, but we didn't have read my professors, but we had the websites Mm. of the university that had all the faculty members and tell, tell a little bit about their background and everything. And you yeah. could, some of them you could just read. Like if, if it's like, oh, professor so-and-so is an expert in 18th century gender fluidity, you know, blah, 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 all the, all the, all the right buzzwords right. like that. And, and I would just see that and go, and, and it was less that I was like, I'm opposed to that ideology as, as much as it was, that doesn't sound interesting to me. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, I would see someone with more, like a more traditional history, you know, so-and-so is an expert on, the dynamics of the imperialism of the British Empire. I'm like, that sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, sounds yeah. cool. So, so I was able to, I was able to get something out of it because I was, I guess, strategic. What were you say? What would you say at that point you were looking for? Right. Because, so you graduate an undergraduate program, bachelor's in history. Yes. Okay. So, what are your career ambitions? Where are you pointing your focus as far as, um, teaching history in the future is concerned at that point. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, I had a lot of really great professors in undergrad. I had some great ones in graduate school too, but, but in undergrad especially. And it was a classic case of they were really cool 
Yeah. And I, and I, and I liked that setting because these were classes where there were, it, it, it's a small liberal arts college. So most of your classes are like 15 students mm-hmm. and, and there's much more interaction with the professors. There's no TAs. Yeah. It sounds like know. we had a really similar undergraduate experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Where, where did you go for? Southern Vermont College Southern Vermont. Okay. in Bennington, Vermont. Okay. Yeah. Where were you? Uh, Flagler College. Flagler uh, in Florida. In in the uh, town that I live in now, that I've lived in for a long time. Is it the, what's it, St. Augustine? Is yeah, that where it is? You've got it. Oh, wow. Very cool. Th- isn't that the first settlement in Florida? The first continuously occupied European settlement in North America. Oh, indeed. Yeah. 40-some years earlier than Jamestown. Yep. Yeah. We've got a great uh, Coquina Spanish fort there. It's really That's cool. right. Yeah. It's It's completely unlike the rest of Florida as far as that goes. You know, lots of... Lots of cool history. So much of Florida is, is only built in since uh, World War II. Right. Um, but St. Augustine's been there forever. So after the show, my high school girlfriend went really? to Flagler, <laughs> right? So was probably there when you were there. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was at Flagler from 2000 to 2003. Uh, then no. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, wait, wait. Flagler was undergrad, right? Undergrad, yeah. Okay. Uh, where'd you go to graduate school? University of Tennessee. University of Tennessee. So um, you're kind of narrowing in on any aspect of history by the end of that? Yeah. By the time I was going to graduate school, I had zeroed in on I wanted to study the British Empire. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So in graduate school, that was – I did a non-thesis MA degree because I still had the the urge – to study a variety of things. Mm-hmm. And I had the option of a thesis MA or a non-thesis MA. And if you do a thesis MA, you end up being a little more specialized. Mm-hmm. Um, you end up having to devote more of your time to your thesis and you're, you're a little bit more constricted and you have to stay more in like your sub-discipline niche. Right, right. But with a non-thesis, you could be more of a generalist. Yeah. And, and you have like a primary field and a secondary field. So my primary field was modern Britain and the British Empire. And my secondary field was United States okay. history. So, yeah, that that's what I was doing at uh, University of Tennessee. And- Do you take, like, all right, so when I was an undergrad and I had the history, it was a history professor, I've talked about this on my show, who mm. really changed my whole attitude, not just about my own ability, um, my whole attitude towards education, certainly my whole attitude towards history. It was my least favorite subject in high school. Mm. I hated it. And he just brought so much energy and knowledge into it. I mean, he had a set of political beliefs that I would later disagree with. I've tried to uh, actually reach out to him and get him on the show. And I think mm. he's maybe taken a couple looks at the website and <laughs> said, I created a monster, you know. But uh, that was a real turning point for me. And I remember it was a challenge because I don't think I was as developed a critical thinker as you were at that point in your life encountering that material. So I felt like I was taking on a lot of his attitudes, but I was bringing lots of biases into things like, um, you know, the study of the civil war, uh, name a topic in Western Civ, like the things that I remember really uh, being immersed into in his classes. Um, How do you, is that normal that a college professor just begins his career with, um, another agenda besides reporting the best story that he can kind of bring together? Because um, yours, your study was obviously connected to or influenced by a belief system, right? Well, kind of. I, I, I don't think that it originally was as much. Okay. Um, because actually what, what made me transition from being kind of a vague, you know, I guess sort of 
small government conservative, but who thought, thought the war on drugs was bullshit, to an, an outright anarchist, was actually the study of history itself. So it was okay. his, history itself made me an anarchist. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Okay. Well, what happened was I kept seeing I kept seeing certain patterns mm. in regard to power. Yeah. And I think part of part of the advantage I had there was because since I was doing a more generalized study of a bunch of different things, um, so many people in academia are are in their own little silo, mm-hmm. and they they know all this like super specific specialized stuff about one microtopic. But we used to have more historians who were those sort of general purpose historians, like the the history equivalent of a general practitioner um, doctor, right? I'm sure. And now what we've mostly got, at least in formal academia, is everyone's like you know just a a podiatrist or that sort of thing. And, <laughs> right. like, and like hardly anyone's around who's putting the big picture together. So, right. Yeah. I mean, cause on the surface it sounds better, right? Specialization in a field like that sounds like it would be better. I mean, obviously a person studying history has to take all of these disparate courses, you know, that are seemingly unrelated and granted right. you can make some connections, but, um, yeah, drawing out like the the Will Durant style, right? The lessons right. of history, like yeah, you, a lot of people common. would lose that. They yeah. would lose that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you need both. You need the specialist and the generalist. Just just like with doctors, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want a general practitioner doing some really intricate brain surgery on you. Right. You want right. the guy who like the brain surgery is his bag, mm-hmm. and and you need um the specialists because they often are the ones doing the important sort of cutting edge primary research. Right. But. I think you also need the people who are are able to take a step back and and kind of put things into more of a context um, and and also identify patterns and parallels and connections and things like that. I I think that's where my strength lies as a history podcaster. I think, you know, part of it is I think I'm good at just talking about stuff. Um, But but I think I've got a skill at synthesis. Right. At at putting putting together dots that other people haven't put together yet. And what's the process like? I mean, how do you develop that skill? Because it's obviously a very important skill. It's funny. I was putting similar questions to Scott Horton yesterday, ah. who sy- kind of synthesizes a picture on yes. a daily basis, right? Yes. And it's funny that we actually ventured briefly into British history, the history of the empire from kind of a conspiratorial angle. Yeah. Uh, he went through that period. And I, and I think that's very interesting. Maybe we can get to that as well. But um, that's always something that's of interest to me when I see somebody who is um, you know, a smart person trying to solve a challenging problem. I mm. think that's what I said to Scott. Um, yeah, yeah. How does that process work for you? Like, if you were to pick it up and hand it, or try to hand it to somebody else, what are the the steps in in synthesizing? Okay, well, you have to start with a a topic that you wanna that you think would make an interesting podcast episode or perhaps <laughs> fifty part series. <laughs> You're right. It happens, and then you. And, and I guess to some degree, it's a, it's a process I just kind of learned by doing research projects as a student in, in the history programs I was in. You start with, all right, I want to learn more about this topic and put together a paper when I was a student or a podcast series now. So the, the next step is what's out there in terms of sources mm-hmm. on that? And, you know, it, it's kind of, hard to explain some of it i'm probably using a little bit of 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 shortcuts and heuristics but identifying what sources would be the most helpful and then collecting those Mm -hmm. and then going through them and and then it's a matter of and this you know probably sounds a lot like sort of trivium type stuff 
going through, let's say, I don't know, you got six different books on the Spanish-American War. Right. They're not all going to line up with each other 100%. Sure. They, they will, if they're competent books, they're going to line up on the basic facts, mm -hmm. when things happen and whatever, people's names. But they're, they're all going to be describing parts of the elephant. Right. And they're not all going to equally describe all the different parts of the elephant. And so what I would do is go through and, first off, try and figure out the overall point of view from which each of the books is coming from. Okay. And so, you know, is, is this an establishment sort of book or is it an anti-establishment book? Is it pro any particular, you know, individual or party? Um, in history, you know, is it, is it a book where like they're clearly in the bag for Teddy Roosevelt or is it a book where they're kind of bashing Teddy Roosevelt, right? Right. So e either one could be like a great man treatment, right? Great, yeah. great an impact, but it, it's kind of built around. I felt like a lot of the history that I learned in, uh, higher education was built around the, the great man theory. I mean, some of it yeah. was like, uh, social movements. But um, I, if I looked at the organization of my notes for any oh. U.S. history course, it was by presidential administrations, you know? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. that, that was kind of what defined the time in, in the mind of the professors that I had. Yeah, yeah. And I still use that to some extent just because it's a, it's a convenient way to sort of organize things. and It's a demarcation. Know, it's yeah, useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Break up the rhythms that way. But so, so I'm collecting books or articles or whatever's out there, um, trying to evaluate the quality because mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, and again, it's a heuristic. It's not always going to work correctly. But in general, if if something is a academically published book mm -hmm. and it's history, it probably has been fact-checked pretty well. Sure. Like, there's probably not major factual errors in there. I mean, occasionally it happens, but it's rare. Okay. So, so probably what's in there is factual, but it may not be the whole story. Or it may be factual, but there's a slant. And so I'm pretty good because of, you know, so many years of doing this at, at figuring out like where someone's slant is. So to a novice, give an example of how a book is a collection of facts, but the author manages to work in a slant. Yeah. And I mean, I totally know what you're talking about. And these books are, <laughs> these books yeah, are everywhere, yeah, but like, how you spot uh, that. Uh, okay. Well, you spot it. I, I guess it requires some, some knowledge of the history and of the historiography. Yeah. So if there's certain things like, for example, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Who I'm going to be hitting with the series soon. Okay, awesome. If an author is covering Woodrow Wilson and they either leave out or, or kind of become apologists for or downplay mm -hmm. some of the darker sides of the Wilson administration. And I don't, I, and I don't even mean the stuff that we would consider darker sides like the Federal Reserve and whatever, but even setting aside the stuff, the racism, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah the stuff that even the mainstream would consider problematic, you know, mm -hmm. the assaults on civil, civil liberties during World War One. Um, yeah, the, the, the racist, racist aspects of them, these sorts of things. If an author is covering Woodrow Wilson and they either leave that stuff out or they just kind of barely touch on it and quickly explain it away mm. and justify it, well, okay, then you're looking at someone who's, you know, pro Wilson on some right. level. Right, absolutely. Whereas if you, if, if they're really pointing these things out and putting a spotlight on them, then you're, you're dealing with someone who is not pro Wilson. Um, I suppose they could just be like a fair objective person or they could be anti Wilson. Right. And then you have to look into also why are they why are they one way or the other, right? So a communist could write a book about Woodrow Wilson where Woodrow Wilson sucks because he's not a communist. Sure, yeah. It would be very different from the book that you or I might write about Woodrow Wilson and saying why he why sucks. He sucks. <laughs> exactly, so, right. So, you know, you have to take into account not just the stance of the source, 
but like the reasoning behind it. Right. Yeah. It's, so I was asking for, uh, I guess, uh, some of those cases that are a little more gray areas, right? Like Tom Lorenzo, uh, Tom DeLorenzo wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln. Right. It's clear where he's coming from, right? Yes. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln. Yes. clear where she's coming from yes right you know like if you look at her collection of work it's obvious that she's very into the great man theory and many men who we do not think are great she has decided are right. very very great so sometimes it's it's extremely explicit but i would think a lot of the times especially when you get into more academic work like you do it requires mm. a bit of um precision and a closer watch to yeah, yeah. And I mean, a pop book, you know, that's like John Adams, the you know, those kinds of things. It's yeah. very clear. It's presenting something to a broad audience where the name and the title of the book is a heroic figure, right? Yes. Even if, you know, challenged or flawed or, you know, complicated, right. emerges from the story as a hero. Um, right. But I would think in some of the work that you're looking at, that's not as easy to, to find. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a different tone and a different approach for academic books mm -hmm. and – I mean, I sort of see what I'm doing as I'm kind of like a bridge where on some level, I mean, most of the sources I look at for my research are, are actual academic sources. Right. You know, I, I like primary sources when I can get get a hold of them, you know, get access to them, but it's not always available. Um, I can't travel to some archive on the other side of the country whenever I feel like it, at least not at this point. But the the academic history books – Again, they, they, they might have an ideological slant to them, but there are more rigorous standards of things like facts mm -hmm. and fact-checking and more rigorous stances of uh, – or standards for things like footnotes, Okay, for example. So I spend a lot of time looking at footnotes. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time sort of like tracking down uh, the trail of breadcrumbs. You know, you, you read this one book about something and maybe maybe hiding in one obscure footnote – is is a reference to some source that like can potentially blow your paradigm of what you think about this thing. Sure. And so I spend a lot of time kind of doing that. And then also again there's there'll be there'll be pieces of the story in one book but not in the other and vice versa. And so synthesis really amounts to you're figuring out like where the where where the parts of one book maybe fill in the gaps left by the other book. Right. And when there are discrepancies and, and there's usually in an, in an academic history book, there's usually not discrepancies of outright fact, but there might be extreme discrepancies of 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 interpretation and meaning. Right, I got you. So, so then that what you do with with synthesis there is try and figure out of the different sources you're looking at which, if any of them, do you think has what seems to be the most correct interpretation based on the full picture of what you're seeing in a bunch of different books about the same or similar thing. I got you. Absolutely. So how do you record and track your discoveries in this process? Um, you mean like in terms of note taking? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I wouldn't really be a, be able to walk away from a book like that with much more than essences. Right. Mm. Um, but, but you need details in yes. many cases and yes. you know, Maybe your mind works in a way that mine doesn't, but I feel like I need all of this stuff uh, logged and tracked. Um, so I didn't know if you had some kind of process for doing a comparison between, mm. um, you know, two pieces on the same subject. Yeah, well, you know, it probably would be better for me to be more systematic about this, but I do kind of have my own my own sort of ad hoc uh, ad hoc system that would probably not make much sense to anyone else. Right, but um. 
if it's a book that I own, mm-hmm. I I actually take my notes in the book. Okay. Um, this is, I, I really, I did this a little bit before I went to college, but I really got, got big into this in college. Um, you know, lots of underlining margin notes, yeah, those sorts of things. If there's something in a book, like just one particular point in it that, that I really think is useful for somewhere else, I'll, you know, mark it up and, and even like fold a corner down at the bottom or whatever. So I, I like to actually take my notes on the book when possible, unless it's, if it's a book I've borrowed from a library or for, from somebody else or whatever, right. then I'll actually have a notebook. I'll try to think about as I'm doing it based on what it is I'm trying to cover in the podcast. I'll try to think about, all right, there's a lot of information in this book. And for a history dork like me, probably a huge amount of it is interesting. Mm-hmm, sure. And a huge amount of it seems potentially important. But in order to avoid either underlining the whole book or taking notes that are just like the whole book, you know, verbatim, I've got to, I've got to make the judgment call of what's really important to right. what it is I'm trying to figure out. And then be able to explain in the podcast. Now, do you so. prep before reading in like a Mortimer Adler fashion, you know, like going through the like, being very clear about what your goal is for uh, a particular book uh, or, you know, how much time do you spend in the index, the table of contents, the researching the author? Uh, yes. Any of those things. All yeah. the above. Yeah. All yeah, the yeah. above. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just read how to read a book. Oh, yeah. For the first time earlier this year. Mm. Um, I, it's one of those, you know, like a million other books that I had heard of for a long time, but never actually read. Yeah, so yeah. And what's funny is when I was reading that, a lot of those sorts of things that they talk about in there, it's stuff that I had already been doing sure, on yeah. my own. But, you know, I, I did pick up a few new, new, you know, strategies and things that, that are, that are helpful. But, you know, I, I had a similar experience when I was in college. I worked for Kaplan. Mm, yeah. I, I was teaching test prep courses. Yeah. I'm what they call a natural test taker. I, I just, I do very well on tests. Right. And I'm, I'm just very good at sort of gaming the test and figuring out, you know, using all those weird strategies they teach you at Kaplan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All those things were things I, I just did naturally. I just kind of on my own figured out how to do them. And so I had a similar experience to when I read how to read a book when I was teaching for Kaplan. And they had, you know, their curricula of all these, all these strategies, you know, all these different like process of elimination strategies and ways to figure out which answers are clearly the wrong ones and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it was the same thing where I was like, Oh, here's someone explicitly systematically explaining all the things that I had just organically just figured out on my own. So it was a similar thing when I read how to read a book. I was like, Oh, this is, and, and you know, I actually did have a couple of professors in college who I don't know if they had read how to read a book, but they actually would share with the students certain Things that maybe weren't exactly the same as how to read a book, but were kind of similar strategies of, of how to really kind of take usefulness out right. of a book. I found it was kind of like confirming the usefulness of strategies that I had developed to compensate for laziness. Ah. Right. So like if I, uh, I remember like big books, dropping big books in front of myself because I had real uh, high level of interest in extracting the information from them. Mm-hmm. But then... It's like, oh, well, I really have time to go through this whole book. I'm not a professional. I'm not getting paid to do this. Why am I even doing this? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I did, I was a history teacher for a couple of years in a mm-hmm. secondary school. But yeah, so I would just say, all right, well, let's start with a table of contents and get a lay of the land. And then let's go to the index and make sure there's enough depth on, you know, I had a goal yep. for going into this book. So the index will tell me if I've got three to five subjects that are worth exploring. Is this the mm-hmm. right book based on how much depth there is, how many pages mm-hmm. cover these things? Yes. You know, that's those were just hacks because sometimes I didn't want to open a book on start on page one and end when it says the end. Yeah. Uh, I would have to think that you would you would be coming across things in your profession all the time that you just wouldn't have time to do that with. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I developed some of those approaches for almost sort of the opposite reason. My natural tendency is if it's a book that's remotely interesting to me, my natural tendency is I want to read the whole thing start to finish, like that's it. Yeah. And so it's the other way around for me where like I would be, I would get bogged down in time because my natural urge is to read very carefully in kind of a straight ahead fashion. And, and I'd say, I can't, if I do this, I'll never finish all the books I need to read on time. Well, that's the other thing too, is that sometimes the approach uh, would be, to, I don't know, there, there were books where I was like, this is, this book is going to change my life. So now we're not talking about history books anymore. But like, this is a book that is going to be absolutely transformative. And I would take it and speed through it once, right, to kind of capture the big picture of it. And then I would go back, kind of making some mental notes or seeing when things were really impactful. And then I would go back through with a highlighter and making notes in the margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, that was a big time investment. I assume when you have to do this over and over and over and over again, that that's just not a realistic way to engage with a lot of books. No, no. So whether, whether I've got the, the, the books, if they're mine and I've marked them up or if I've done some notes in a notebook, if it's, if it's borrowed books that aren't mine to write on, then on, on some level, the most challenging part of my pre, you know, pre recording an episode is, the I guess I guess in trivia in terms of probably be the the logic yeah. part where okay you've accumulated all these these different tidbits that you can then compare and contrast so you got to do that but the other thing is because it's a podcast uh, and you know this is obviously applies to solo episodes not not to 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 interview type episodes as much but you know when you're doing a long narrative solo thing whether it's history or something else if you want it to be good and to make sense and for it to be something that people can follow, yeah. you know, as they're driving to work or whatever it is they're doing, you, you need to have it organized in a way that makes sense, mm-hmm. both from the standpoint of, cause there's kind of two things going on. Um, in order to, to do this reasonably well, you have to simultaneously be teaching and storytelling. Exactly. So you have exactly. to, yeah, you have to take both into account. Um, you know, oh, I have this information and these points that I want to get across, but simultaneously, I want this to be interesting. I want people to listen to it, um, not really like, oh, this is this is some some boring shit, but I really want to learn what's in this. Mm-hmm. But to to for it to be painless, yeah. as, as painless as possible right, of right. learning. So that that's actually often the most challenging step in the in the process for me is that kind of step where figuring out how to organize this, how to tie it together, you know, what topics am I going to cover? How am I going to, you know, connect these, these things together, um, segue from one topic to the next. It's a, it's a special challenge. I think when, for me anyway, coming from a world uh, of history, like in public school where storytelling was prioritized over, Mm -hmm. uh, the reporting of facts that were collected from a sound critical thinking process Mm -hmm. of comparing and contrasting, right? Like something was deliberately picked for having some kind of purpose, right? Mm. Um, Names were changed. Stories were bent. You know, Mm. all of, all of those things. I mean, we could list a hundred examples of that from American history, from colonial history, but colonial and pre-colonial history of the United States. Mm. Um, All those stories are legends, right? That serve a purpose. um, Yeah. yeah. You mean like Washington and the cherry tree and those sorts of. Even, even things that uh, Paul Revere's ride, like Washington's Mm. cherry tree is obviously, uh, you know, it's clearly mythology once Mm. you're 12 or 13, but um, 
the ride of Paul Revere. Yep. Like that the story isn't about Paul Revere, you know, it's about somebody else. Um his name wasn't really rhymable with stuff. Oh, uh, you're yeah. talking about the I forget his I- name. Israel Bissell. Israel was his name as simple as Bissell? Israel Bissell, yeah. And yeah. I remember that cuz uh oh, I can't remember the comedian's name. There was a there Robert was a, Wool. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he talks about that in like an HBO special. Yeah, yeah, I just remember. I can't take credit for this joke. He he said something like, uh, "Israel Bissell." He sounds like he's a Jewish vacuum cleaner. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't rhyme with very many things, like like Paul Revere does. Right. Know? Yeah. Paul Revere is very um, useful. Yeah, and Paul Revere is he, he he's really kind of a failure when it comes to his midnight ride. He didn't he didn't make it all the way to uh to Concord. He, he got, didn't make it anywhere. He, yeah. he just went around uh, town. He he made it to Lexington, I think. Right. Oh no. Uh, I I think in that telling of the story because it came from a Longfellow poem. I want right. to say the the whole legend of Paul Revere. Uh, I think he just did a few blocks, <laughs> you know. Okay, uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, don't... I I probably I probably covered this in detail when I did the American Revolution years ago on my podcast. I, I thought he made it to Lexington, but not all the way to Concord. Okay, that, I mean that's not a bad ride from Boston. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Even with the roads of back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the oh, They might have been better than they are now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the federal government there to, to build nice roads. Uh, the the other example I was thinking was Squanto. Squanto yeah. the Indian, who was, like, kidnapped and brought to Europe. And right. it's never explained. I mean, no one ever asked, I guess, in elementary school why the helper of the pilgrims knows English. Right. Uh, and it, it kind of – there was this – it disrupts the legend if you know that Europeans were there ahead of the Mayflower, right. fishing and maybe kidnapping people sometimes, and definitely spreading small and spreading disease and, yeah. that killed everyone that Squanto knew. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving thing where they where they have the Charlie Brown characters as like the pilgrims? I must have. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's such complete like uh, just propaganda mythologizing. They they have it where where the the pilgrims show up and they're like, wow. Aren't we lucky and isn't Providence looking out for us that we showed up and there's all these empty farm fields that have been planted and all these, you know, like just all these resources waiting for us with mm-hmm. no one around. Yeah. And and they never they never uh, at all even imply like, yeah, that's because everybody died of smallpox and malaria or, or not malaria, but, you know, yellow fever or plague or whatever. Um, and and they, they just kind of put it right into the nationalist mythology of in, in Charlie Brown, they don't they don't. I guess I guess they do kind of say it because it was made you know fifty years ago or whatever. They they do get kind of like, well, well, the Almighty must have destined us to to found this community or whatever. Yeah. Um. You know, because they got pretty religious on some of those old Charlie Browns. You know. Uh, oh Mars sure. And whatever. Yeah. Like that Christmas one. But you know, it's it's classic kind of like civil religion of what would be in like a nineteen fifties school textbook the result though is such a robbery uh you know for uh, you know really from the minds and the potential enthusiasm of children right like what a fascinating story that this man um is kidnapped by i think british fishermen brought to europe um Mm -hmm. taught english tries to work his way back doesn't make it winds up back in europe and then eventually gets home you know, and his whole civilization is almost wiped out. And his out whole civilization is gone. And I mean, it, it is an amazing story. Imagine that as a movie, mm-hmm. but it's sanitized uh, just out of the the sort of founding of America legend because yep. there's it raises too many questions. But right. those questions could, you know, maybe it maybe it doesn't happen for somebody when they're seven or eight. 
But if that story was brought back, like in middle school and high school, and mm-hmm. elaborated on, like, okay, who was Squanto? Did do, do you guys ever have any questions about mm-hmm. this weird man? Like, it's right. you know something from a Disney movie, and he's just there. Um, but that never happens. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think a huge opportunity is missed in stories like that. And there are probably so many. There's probably countless stories like that in American yeah. history alone. Casualties of a kind of san- sanitization, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and just in general simplification. Indeed. And maybe it's it's something uh, kind of a, a dark streak in my personality, but I find that that disturbing stuff is interesting. Indeed. And you know, stories of like the government doing horrible stuff to people, you know, whatever it is, MK Ultra or, or or Tuskegee or or the Federal Reserve ripping us all off mm-hmm. through inflation or whatever. I mean, just to me, that's just interesting. Aside from even setting aside like my own, you know, emotional response to it and being like, this is wrong and I wish more people knew about it. But just from a, from a pure storytelling point of view, it's right. interesting stuff. I mean, you know, when when you read something like Creature from Jekyll Island and and you get the the real story on on all these bankers conspiring to create the federal reserve and then acting like it's this progressive reform for the public interest or whatever yeah um it's it's interesting it's like something out of a out of a clandestine novel or whatever indeed so you know th- that being said i have an elevator story that i have to tell over and over and over again on my show especially when i do interviews with people or when i'm being interviewed about the history of public school do you have an elevator story for that? I know I listened to one of your recent shows where you were talking to, I think he was a current public school teacher, maybe a former public school teacher. It's pretty recently, like last 10 episodes ago or 10 episodes ago. Or so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Mike K. Mike K. Yep. Yep. I'm interested in your telling of that story. It's a kind of a way of us comparing notes here. I'm wondering how you'd synopsize that for somebody. Um, it would it would probably be pretty similar to how you've covered it. Yeah. You know, I think in I guess more more of your early episodes when you were doing that. Yeah. Before you moved to the to the kind of what to do next step. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably wouldn't be very different than than how how you would cover it as far as the the Prussian influence and then the turn of the century progressives kind of amping up. Some of the negative aspects of that even further. The John Dewey types. I mean, I don't want to make it all about all about a couple of guys. Indeed. But, right. Yeah. But you know those types. Right. Those types. Sure. Um, all those other guys that like Gatto mentions, who were sort of in that in that milieu at the turn of the century into the mid twentieth century, and certainly a lot of those corporate foundations mm-hmm. are a big part of it. The Rockefeller Foundation and all those. Um, people don't ask ask the question very often. Like, who actually comes up with these? These curricula, you know, when they're like, oh, here's the new way we're going to teach math or the new who, who actually came up with that? Where were they? Who was funding them? Why? Why did they come to the conclusions they did about, oh, let's let's not do phonics anymore. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, and, and and then there's there's ideological stuff going on. But there's also the kind of uh, public interest corporate welfare stuff where, you know, some companies got a particular line of standardized tests that they would like to sell. Sure. And so they then gear the get get the politicians to gear the curricula towards that. Or they're um, interested in some kind of outcome, you know, some kind of social or economic outcome well, yeah, from what's that. what's going into the school. So, I mean, the Rockefellers get involved in funding um, Dewey at Columbia yep. because yep. it's like, oh, you're trying to figure out how to put everybody in a mold and get, you know, a certain outcome. Well, here's some money. <laughs> Let yeah. us know what you find. We'd be interested. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so you see people kind of working towards the same thing, maybe for entirely different reasons. I think Dewey was very idealistic. I yeah. think he had a vision of what he thought was a better society. I think he's kind of turned into um, a more nefarious character than he actually was. I mean, he's kind of measured exclusively by uh, the results and not mm. so much by uh, what his intentions were. Well, I, I, think, I, yeah. I, I guess whether his intentions were good or not so good, it kind of even setting aside judging it by results, it also would kind of depend on, on on your own values and ideology because there's no question he was a hardcore collectivist. Oh, of course. Of I mean, course. He's got all those quotes about, you know, oh, I believe education is really about absorbing the child into the collective race or whatever, you know, all those sorts of statements he made along those lines. So, um, you know, I would still see him as a nefarious character other than in the sense that I'm sure he did not see himself in that line. I'm Indeed. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But I would still see him as, as nefarious. Um, just just because i'm i'm against that that type of collectivism so but, you say you like to tell these stories right the, the, mm. where you can find uh, a wrong that's being done and kind of showcase it uh you you, you were i you had a positive view of the story as far as maybe the usefulness of the story mm. where there is a wrong that is done there is a kind of a shock value to that uh as far as like presenting to students Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, so and definitely, you know, when you're talking to mostly 18 and 19-year-olds, mm -hmm. as you know, they do respond to the basic idea of you've been lied to, or, oh, or yeah. at the very least, a big part of the truth has been withheld from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's some neat stuff that's like, it's not secret, but it might as well be secret, because hardly anyone knows it, even though you could look it up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I talk to my students about, like, COINTELPRO... Or, oh yeah, I, I, it's amazing what I'm able to get away with uh, in class um, that that you wouldn't expect. But I, I'm I'm lucky that where where I teach the actual faculty member, we're we're not very like micromanaged by anybody. Yeah, and it's just it's just kind of the style of the administrators, I guess. They they just sort of you know mostly leave you alone, and so I'm able to do U.S. history my way. So. You know, we obviously have to cover some of the standard stuff just because it's in the course outline, but we're not micromanaged nearly as much as a K through 12 teacher would be. Sure. So, and, and our course outlines are very kind of open ended and vague. So, it, there'll be like, for example, a, a point in the outline that says, cover World War II. Right. Okay. Right. That doesn't say what. I'm World War II. <laughs> right. So, guess what? You know, we're going we're gonna to get into why the uh, atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki may have been completely unnecessary and, you know, Unnecessary from the point of view of, oh, the Japanese would have never surrendered without that, you know. Right. Um, so so one of the things that I, I noticed about, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, about the whole you've been lied to narrative or container for teaching history right. is it can be incredibly poisonous because it's yeah, a way yeah. that a lot of college professors can build trust with students mm -hmm. as like they've um, showed them some kind of a revelation. Yeah. Right. And then through that trust, they can use, um, they can push a political agenda. Right. They, right. they will also, uh, in my case anyway, it was almost automatically accepted as truth. Mm. This guy knew that I had been lied to about all this other stuff. That so much yeah. of the history that I got in, um, you know, certainly elementary school, and then I felt like elementary school was where they kind of really push the message. Right. Like you're mm. really indoctrinated there, and then in middle school and high school, uh, it's kind of like, oh, this is so boring that you don't yeah, really have yeah, to worry about it again. It's mostly very boring. Yeah. But but that that initial 
contact with the subject of history and the sort of legends of America, that's pretty firmly in place for most people at that point. And then once those legends aren't going to work anymore, it just becomes sort of worksheet and dates and names time for the rest of public school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, though, like, while we're still on the subject of these things, what's your favorite story to tell students or what, what what have you had the best results with from, from mm. any, you know, area of the study of history, that kind of a uh, co-intel that, that exposure, mm. right? What, what is either your favorite to tell, maybe they're the same or the one that you found to be the most impactful as far as like engaging students. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say. I, I guess I'd have to say overall, um, probably the one that I, that has the most like visible impact on many of them is in, in U.S. history two, which is the most uh, popular class because it's the, it's the gen ed history class. Mm-hmm. So it's the one that like almost everybody takes. Um, in U.S. history two, after we, we cover World War One, then I, I give them war is a racket. Um, yeah. And they have to read War is a Racket, and then we come in the next class and we just have a discussion. Um, I, I don't go Socratic that much because I have so much stuff I have to cover because it, it's like intra-level survey classes. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the classes where I go Socratic and just ask them about War is a Racket and, and leverage that into, into discussion. And War is a Racket seems to really resonate with them, I think in part because it's, it's written in a very straightforward fashion. It's very, very easy to read and understand. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, you know, dense founding father, you know, writing or something. And also the fact that it's one of the most decorated Marines in American history who's saying all this. Right. It packs a punch. And I'm teaching at a small town in, in a, a fairly rural part of the South. Um, I'm in North Florida, which is the more southern part of Florida, culturally speaking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my students are military veterans, the, the older ones, yeah. who are not the typical 18-year-olds. And a lo- um, presumably a lot of the 18-year-olds are people seriously considering going into the military. Right, like there's right. just tons of military people um, in the area. And it's amazing – you know, you might assume that this would piss them off, that I would have them read War is a Racket, but precisely the opposite. Um, the veterans usually love it more than anybody. And yeah, that's interesting. You know, we were talking about this last night. Um, uh, I was talking about this with a military veteran, the movies that veterans love, right? Uh-huh. Uh Titles that would maybe surprise you, like Full Metal Jacket, Platoon. These yeah. are not, you know, because that it's it's saying something that – or it's bringing into – reality or awareness something that maybe in many cases is very hard to put into words for people who experience it and i think you know from my experience talking to a lot of people who were in the military and wound up in this whole scene right um when something is able to do that effectively and concisely like war is a war is a racket is incredible it's startling i what for me when i read it like i was two years into being a libertarian or at least Mm -hmm. one year into it and i had been like a conspiracy theorist info wars guy before that Mm -hmm. it was still really really a startling thing to read considering the source and considering Mm -hmm. just how blunt he was yeah yeah if, if that if that same sort of thing was written by you know some some left-wing socialist professor somewhere. Right. No one would particularly care. Exactly. But, sure. But it's coming from one of the most decorated, you know, war heroes in American history. And in, in general, most, and I, I have so many veterans come through my classes and the vast majority of them 
love my class and like, I'm very skeptical about all the wars in class. I'm, you know, exposing like the, the real stuff about the origins of these wars, like the real ulterior motives going on. Um, you know, get into things like the Gulf of Tonkin incident and, um, the USS Maine, which is, did a huge, huge podcast about it, way more depth than I ever would get into in class. Um, about the origins of the Spanish-American War. And this was it, like almost four hours, yeah, three or four hours. Yeah, yeah, three yeah. hours and change, yeah, as yeah. a beast. And um, again, you, you, would, you would think, based on kind of superficially thinking about it, like, oh, a lot of the veterans are going to get, you know, really pissed off and offended that I'm calling into question Team America's wars. Right. 90% of them are, like, very amenable to what I'm saying. And a huge number of veterans coming through my classes, they love my class. They're, they're the students that will, like, hang out and chat with me after class or, or in my office hours or something like that. And, and they, they want to tell me their, like their personal stories that go along with, with these sorts of critiques Absolutely. of how the system works. Right. And, yeah. and I think part of it is that I don't, I don't pander to them. I don't patronize them. I don't immediately, you know, start worshiping the ideal of them and go, Oh, thank you for your service and blah, blah, blah. I've had a lot of veterans tell me like they can't stand it. Uh, and I'm sure not all veterans are this way, but a lot of veterans, they kind of don't like it when people are like worshiping the ideal of, veteran and like being all thank you for your service and pandering and patronizing right sure. and, and i just i just treat him like a person you know i don't i don't treat him any any different than any other student um and and they they seem to appreciate that and i've had them many of them say things to me like at the end of the semester like you know i really appreciated your class that it wasn't all just a bunch of bullshit mm. that, that like you know you really tried to tried to to dig in things and, and get it get it what's really going on so yeah, that that's probably Smedley Butler is is the thing that's packed the biggest punch over the years. How do you before you introduce something like that? How do you alert people in your class to maybe your worldview? Mm-hmm. Do you do you expect it to come through like subtly but consistently, or do you have some kind of a session where you say, you know, this is these are the things that kind of influence the way that I see history, that I see the world, that I see politics. Yeah. Because I never had that experience in undergrad or graduate school. I mean, I was in graduate school, not for history, but for education. Mm. These people were nuts, you know? Mm. And as far as their their political beliefs, and they never explicitly stated um, right. any of how their worldview or their attitudes towards education or the profession of teaching, like what informed it. None mm-hmm. of that was all invisible. It was presented as if it was unbiased truth, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And nothing is. Certainly in in that discipline where I was uh, pursuing a graduate degree, and it's probably even less the case in history. So, Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I let me think how to put this. The way that I, I deal with that is kind of like what, what you were alluding to. I have, um, very often I'll, I'll have sort of a, a portion of class towards the beginning of the semester where I kind of go over a little bit of where I'm coming from because to me, I'm, I'm not a believer in the idea that there is such a thing as objective history. Right. I actually, I think, but I can't prove so I guess I'm, I'm vaguely agnostic, but I think that there is such a thing as objective reality. Okay, I agree. But I don't think there can be such a thing as objective history, because history is a depiction and recreation of the past. It's not the past. It's right. a depiction of the past. And the depiction is coming through human beings, who are the ones collecting the sources, putting them together, and figuring out how to, how to connect it all and, and describe it. Mm-hmm. So um, 
to me, the, the intellectually honest thing, whether it's someone who's writing a history book or teaching a history class, is to somewhere towards the beginning of things, go over, look, this is, this is kind of where I'm coming from ideologically. I'm not going to pretend to be unbiased because that would be dishonest. Right. And anyone, I think, I think anyone who says, oh, my, my version of history is objective and is the truth with a capital T, um, they're either, you know, fools who don't understand what all this means or, or they're, they're, they're kind of being intellectually dishonest and they're trying to, you know, they're, they're going to give you their ideology, but they're going to tell you it's the objective truth. Absolutely. Which is mostly so, what I encountered. Yeah. 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 So I actually, um, and I, I sort of explain it to them, you know, how I'm saying it now, where I basically say, look, um, you know, I, I actually go over this whole idea that, that history can't be objective right. because it's a depiction of the past. It's not the past. Right. You know, the past happened, I think, anyway. I'm not a, I'm not a full-blown, you know, there is no, no objective reality person. But, but the, the depiction of it is in the same way that a, that a painting or a photograph of something, even if it's done really realistically, is never the thing itself. Yeah, of course. And so even in a photograph, the, the photographer is making all of these judgment calls of, all right, how do I focus it? What do I put? How do I frame this? You Light. Know? All, yeah. yeah, all the little settings yeah. and everything like that. So even a photograph is an objective. No, I mean, I've so. talked about it as um, history is kind of a scene in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Now, something happens in that scene as far as the physical people who are involved and the things right. that they say the presentation of that scene on film, once you involve the choices of the director and the cinematographer, mm-hmm. you have almost infinite ways to present what actually happened. Yes. Right? The yes. way, the height of the light, the distance of the camera, the amount of light, um, the angle of the camera. So many things can influence the way. And, 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 you know, good directors are very good at putting the camera in weird places to create odd feelings about, you know, normally mundane things in in mm. a scene in a movie um yeah, and yeah it, i think that's a very good yeah, metaphor yeah yeah absolutely yeah and so you know i i kind of go over that with them and it's also something i've done in my podcast you know periodically i don't i don't hide where i'm coming from but i also sort of say something like this um i'm not trying to convert you to a particular cause or party or belief okay. that, that the way I see my role is more like I'm going to share some information with you that if I've, if I've done my job well, as I define it, it's going to be stuff you've never come across before mm-hmm. in prior history classes or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or stupid, you know, history shows on TV. And it's stuff that, that I've made the editorial judgment call is interesting. Right, right. And that I think on some level or another is important. You may disagree, but hey, I'm, I'm sort of the, I'm sort of the, the, the captain of, of, of this whole thing. So, mm-hmm. hey, you know, um, but what you do with the information I'm going to share is ultimately up to you. Right. So I'm going to drop these facts on you. If, if you, you know, if it, if it does change your overall ideology or worldview, if it doesn't, I don't see that as my job. Right. I see it as my job ends when I, I do my best to try and and kind of just get people to to learn new stuff and look at things in a different way than they did before. And I, I really made that a conscious thing in my teaching long before I started the podcast. At the end of my first year teaching college, I got back my student evaluations and they were mostly pretty good. Mm-hmm. But one student wrote something and it really kind of bugged me. 
he, he wrote something because it's mostly multiple choice little evaluations, but there's some spots where you can write in some of your own comments. And he wrote sure. something like, yeah, the class was pretty good, but it wasn't much different from the world history classes I've already had two or three times in grade school. Like what, you know? Yeah. So, but I, I was a rookie, so I hadn't, I hadn't evolved. Right. You yeah. Know, my, my kind of unique style and voice of, of how to do it. But that, that really kind of hit me. I was like, I don't want my class to be that. I don't want my class to be, you know, the, the same shit that they heard in, in middle school or high school or whatever. Right. Or the same shit they just encounter on, on TV. Um, and so from that point on, I made that one of my focuses. Like, I just want my class to be as different, uh, in terms of the sorts of topics we hit and the, and the ways that we come at things than Indeed. what you've ever gotten before. And then, then it's up to the student it, to decide it, that, what to do with the information. That's a really good way to put it because I think what, what I struggled with teaching on a much simpler level, like I was teaching high school kids, but I was, you know, really kind of transporting my college experience. I was trying to transport this sort of eye-opening experience that I had had in college studying history mm. into this high school classroom. And one of the things that I really struggled with was the storytelling aspect with the comprehensiveness, mm. right? So I had been in public school for 12 years and everything gets covered step by step by step or so you think, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Chapter by chapter. It's chapter 12 in the history book and then it's chapter 13. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't prioritizing. I wasn't like reading the audience that I had mm -hmm. or getting feedback from the audience that I had, not just as an educator, but as a storyteller and maybe shifting or prioritizing into things that would keep their interest. I felt like I'd try to go in there at the beginning of a class and say something interesting or yeah. you know, something. Have a neat of, little anecdote. Or yeah, like shocking. Like, yeah. oh, did you guys know this? Well, I'm going to tell you about it today. But then I felt like I had a checklist of names and dates that I had to get through so the whole story yeah. would make sense. Yep. You know, and I didn't realize I didn't realize that I could prioritize storytelling. And then it was up to them what they wanted to do with it. It seemed like my history teacher in uh, the, the one that I liked the best that I had in college, he seemed to know, even though he was really, really detail oriented and into chronologies and, you know, filling in all of the, uh, the best he could, um, or the, the best we could acknowledge anyway, he was trying oh. to fill everything in, in the story. It was the way the stories were told that actually made me want to do something with it after I left college. Mm. Right. So, uh, the podcast is like you can narrow in on you know one thing as exactly. much as you want, and there's all kinds of constraints that are removed, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what drew me to it, um, to ultimately starting it. It was one of those things I kind of thought about for a long time before I finally took the plunge. Right. And actually, your podcast was one of the ones that shortly before I started my podcast, I found your podcast, uh -huh. and you were one of I'd say like two or three of the podcasts that really made me kind of think. I can, I can do this and, and make something. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and the reason why, why yours really kind of resonated with me in that way was that you were just like some regular dude. Yeah. Who had been a teacher. Like you weren't a guy who, who, you know, had, had been, you know, a celebrity already for something or had written a bunch of books or whatever. Like th those sorts of people, they, they start a podcast. They already have an audience from whatever else they've done. Right. Right. And, but, you know, the fact that you were some guy who was just, you know, some teacher. And, and, uh, you know, started to have issues with that and started to, to, to do, you know, in-depth research and then just talking about it. I was like, oh, okay. I'm some guy too. <laughs> right. I love that story. That's great. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. I did not know that. Yeah. And, and I, and, and the, the way that I started to, to think about it, 
um, I started to think about, and this is again storytelling, but it's it's kind of how we give our give everything we do significance. I started to think about all the teaching I'd been doing, and all the things before it, as far as just studying history. And I, I really I started studying history when I was like twelve or something. I yeah. just got interested in reading history books. It was weird for a twelve year old freak, but um, I. I now look back in hindsight and I look at all that stuff before I started the podcast as essentially a version of like wax on wax off. Mm, like mm. I, I was developing certain areas of knowledge and skills mm-hmm. and I did not know what they would be for. Yeah. And then along comes this, this medium where it's like wide open. You can talk about whatever you want. And another, another of the podcasts that kind of really, really kind of inspired me was of course, Dan Carlin. Sure. And, and just the fact that, you know, his views on things are a bit different from mine and, and his style's a little different, but he's very good at what he does, clearly. Mm-hmm, That's why he's, mm-hmm. why he's as big as he is. And with him, it was just specifically that here's a history podcast that has an enormous following. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that, that can be a thing. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, sort of combine like, oh, a regular guy who, who's not famous from anything before can start a podcast and, and run with it. And then combine with, oh, here's a guy over here who does a history podcast. And it's like a big deal. And, you know, Probably my my show will, will never be as big as Dan Carlin's by a mile, right? But you know it doesn't have to be. Um, so yeah, those sorts of things. And then I kind of realized like, oh, I've been spending all this time learning all this shit and figuring out ways to explain it to people. And in in a class setting, I mean, it's voluntary on the level of like students don't have to go to college, right? But it's not voluntary really that they're in my class if they go because. 99% of them are just punching out gen ed credits. Yeah, exactly. So it's this weird kind of not really voluntary thing. And most of them are just in there. They just want to, you know, get through it as easy as possible and whatever. And so is that I, that challenge you've observed that you like that challenge of like, I'm, I know you're I just wandering through here, but I'm going to get you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Some, some days I do. Some days I get kind of tired of it. Okay. <laughs> right. there, and, and it's, it's weird how sometimes the, sometimes the more problematic students from that point of view, yeah. you know, um, the more hostile audience, they'll often congregate somehow magically more into like one class versus another. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'll have say two US two US history classes in one day and class A is like more than half the students are are really at least somewhat interested and really kind of engaged without me having to drag them into it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another class later that day and it's like all the just maybe shouldn't have even gone to college at all. I don't know, but but for sure are coming in with with just an attitude like they're going to the dentist. Like I know this is gonna suck. And I'm determined to make sure it sucks. Right, so right, that, like, right. You know, no matter what this guy does, I'm determined to hate it. Um, but, you know, I, I realize that I, if you can actually get at least some of the people who come in there with a pretty bad attitude, and I don't blame them on some level because they probably had shitty history in, in middle school and high school. Right. So, but if I can make at least some of those people learn something mm-hmm. and be interested and, and kind of get something out of it where they didn't expect it, I said, oh, well, the podcast – People are tuning in voluntarily. Yeah. If they don't, if they're not interested in it, they could just not listen to it. Right. So that's the other thing I've, I've noticed is the dynamic is, is so much, you know, improved by that voluntariness, by the fact that no one is even indirectly required to listen to my podcast. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a much improved relationship with the audience. Um, you know, it's sort of like if you're, if you're a comedian, you get the advantage of people come to a comedy club wanting to laugh. Right. Most sure. So you have that advantage mm-hmm. that they're they're like, all right, you know, well, someone who who downloads a history podcast, 
they're already at least somewhat amenable. Yeah, and they're know. kind of rooting for you too because yeah. they like your delivery of it. It's it's really yeah. nice. I yeah. like that. Um, I've tried to think about ways with my show, and I've wondered if you found any to really embrace that kind of audience relationship more. Mm-hmm. Um, to try and do something more interactive, and yeah, I t- so my first attempt was uh, a call-in show. There were uh, the ratio of uh, technical headaches to calls was not, you know, <laughs> yeah. or was too high. Yeah. And um, then, of course, the tour, which was a, a life changing experience. I went all across the country. Yeah, 40 days. yeah, that was really yeah. cool. I, I, yeah. you, were, you never came close enough for me to make it to one, but uh, I was, oh, yeah. was kind of jealous too. I've, I've wanted to do, you know, just a, just a road trip like that for a long time. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh that me too. So cool. Yeah. I love road trips. Yeah, and I can't even. I I could barely even go home. I went back to yeah. New Hampshire for like two months, and I was like, I'm leaving again. And, so are you like full on nomad now? No, not really. I'm I'm actually reset. I was not ever really nomading. Um, I had kind of like staked out a central location in Pennsylvania, and I was mm. trying to decide whether or not I wanted to move to Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. So wow. I was driving back and forth between the two. And by your facial expression when I said Philadelphia, maybe you'd be happy to hear that I decided on Pittsburgh. Um, well, you know, I haven't been there since I was a little kid. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, in general, I'm, I'm really a fan of a really big city. Yeah. And Pittsburgh so. doesn't feel, Pittsburgh looks like a big city, but it feels like a wonderful neighborhood, right? Mm. When it's many wonderful neighborhoods and it's mm. very neighborhood oriented mm. and it has a really interesting history. And a lot of that big Carnegie money went to good <laughs> use there. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of those Rust Belt cities. I mean, Detroit. As, yeah. as as I'm sure you know, is, is similar to that, where there's like all this neat old stuff mm-hmm. um, that's still there as far as just like really, really neat architecture and, and you know, interesting like um, uh, cultural stuff and, and, and museums and whatever that you wouldn't expect because it's a town that like used to be bigger. It used to be a boom town. Right, right. And yeah, there's, there's that, that, that interesting kind of like semi-slow motion collapse mm. happening, which th- there's obviously bad bad aspects to it and less bad aspects to it and some neat stuff too um and what's really but, cool about pittsburgh is the people there you know they were they were saying 60 years ago this the city should be abandoned yeah like people shouldn't even live here yeah you know and you can see these old pictures or old um films of the city just covered in smoke right yeah. the, like le- it is so beautiful like the topography of pittsburgh is it, you know it's this city on two on three rivers basically uh in between two of the rivers as they confluence into the third and cities in between, and then to the south, there's all these big hills, mm. right? And and there's these all these vistas. There's all these beautiful bridges that was hidden in a cloud of smoke once. You know, yeah. it wasn't as beautiful then. Obviously, the, yeah. a lot of the beautification took place after the smoke cleared. Right. But it, it, to me, what I saw is that, it, and I've looked at the history a little bit. It, it was a culture of people who cared about saving their their city on their own right uh-huh. there was no epa there was no national guard state of emergency people decided community by community from from the best i can understand that the city was disgusting and unhealthy hmm. people would volunteer their time neighborhood by neighborhood they'd pick a day they'd scrape soot off the houses people fought to preserve areas that they wanted to tear down and develop into condos or industrial parks hmm. and um it's a very eclectic, very diverse place. Um, you know, I was trying to choose when I was on my tour, I was trying to choose between six places to live. Once I decided on Pittsburgh, I realized I had like 13 new choices, right? Yeah. Because uh, just the, the diversity from area to area hmm. um, that are sometimes carved out by ethnic groups or sometimes carved out by the sort of um, 
the institutions of a certain neighborhood, like Carnegie Mellon University is just an incredible place. But mm. then there's downtown and there's the Mexican War Streets neighborhood, mm. which is almost kind of like New Orleans. Mm. Uh, and all this is happening within a couple of square miles, mm. you know. So it's really, really an amazing place. I have been there now a dozen times. And every time I get there, I go, oh, my God, here we are. This is the most amazing place. Like mm. when you can see the skyline and all the bridges, friends there. I, even if I didn't have friends there, the culture there is really amazing. Mm. And it's a kind of stimulation that I need at this point in my life. Mm. Now, I was I lived in New Hampshire, but I grew up in New Hampshire. You know, right. I was a free stater. I moved away and then joined the Free State Project and moved back. Mm. But um, the best place to live in New Hampshire is where I grew up. And I'm a guy who can live anywhere because of my work. Right. So um, I'd feel – I know this isn't the best way to think about it, but I'd feel like I was missing an opportunity if I settled when there were infinite – you know – Many, many choices of desirable places to live, and I settled mm -hmm. 15 minutes away from where I grew up. Yeah, you know, after yeah. I'd already spent so much time there. Yeah, yeah, no that that makes that makes perfect sense. So, what have you what have you noticed from the the big the big road trip tour you did? Um, obviously, you know the the events and and things themselves that you did, and, and the time mm -hmm. you spent with people. But like in terms of the the I don't know, I guess the the effect of that, the legacy of that, like did it has it has it noticeably made your audience larger has it noticeably made your audience more diehard has it can you can you can you tell or i i can only talk about the impact that it's had really on me okay. so far like as far as any increase in listenership i mean it was a good promotional thing and i got a few nice interview spots with like tom woods and michael malice afterwards right um so doing a thing is a uh, that is different and elaborate is a good way to promote what you already have. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like writing a new book. If exactly, if you're an author. It yeah. was my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, a nine thousand mile book. It's <laughs> a way to think about it. Um, but for me, I, I feel like it was so much more satisfying, and I actually uh, it, it it took me back into working on the show. And wanting to rebuild the show with a new kind of energy. Hmm, because, it, first of all, because it, it was something that put me outside of my comfort zone, mm -hmm. right? And then I decided that was a very attractive place for me to be. Hmm. The other thing is it put faces and personalities and sort of interpersonal connections to names. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 one of the things I like about even even something like this, Yeah, you know, that, that we're at right now. Um Similar thing, obviously, you did it across the whole country, so on a like next level as far as that goes. But it is cool at, at a thing like this, or um, you know, any, any sort of like liberty event or whatever. When some of your some of your fans that you've interacted with online for years, right? Yeah, you know, who are some of like the earliest diehard supporters of your show and whatever, um, to actually meet them face to face. Yeah, it's very cool. Oh, it's it was absolutely amazing. It was it was motivational too, um, yeah. to yeah. to kind of take those memories of the people back. Uh, uh, but it was also how, it was how I got here, yep. right? Because I am a New Hampshire guy. We have our own summer fest happening this week that I've sure. been attending nine years in a row. Uh, <laughs> when I was in Detroit, uh, Joe Motard said, "Will you come to?" Uh, it was they did they did a nice uh, sell, right? Like, right? like they brought me to the city. Uh, we had this awesome meetup um, at one of their houses, yep. and late late in the night after we had had a great time recording a silly podcast joe said will you come to the midwest peace and liberty yeah. i said of course of course yeah whatever yeah. Uh, you want me to speak and it's but it's interesting then i got here like I, I i said to joe um pick a topic for me i'll you know since you've been such a good supporting listener you decide what you want to hear me talk about mm. and i'll do it 
But then that didn't work out because he gave me some <laughs> suggestions and I didn't want to do them. And when I got here, the, the thing that I wanted to do most was just Q&A. You know, back to that whole um, uh, the question about ways to embrace the relationship with the audience. Right. Like, I just wanted to hear what what's on your minds. You know, mm. people who came to see me. Like, what do you what can I answer for you? Let's get uncomfortable. Right. You know. Um, so I'm really happy I came. I'm really happy I'm sticking around an extra day. This has just been completely awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love all the folks uh, at at the fest. I, I was here in 2016, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't make it last year. So, but um, they really wanted me back. So, you know, they helped get me here. Um, mm-hmm. Long way from Florida. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, and and literally, my summer school classes ended the day. My summer school classes ended on Thursday. Yeah. Friday yeah. morning, I was on a plane, you know, to get up here. So. Yeah, I was um, treated really well, you know, yeah. and really encouraged. And, and like, I had never been so excited, I think, to come to an event. Like, I had been asked to speak places before. Yeah, yeah. But this was like, it, it really felt like I belonged here, yeah. you know, based on the experience that I had in Detroit. Yeah. And, and yeah. They, they just took really good care of me. Like, Joe is working on my car right now, I oh, think. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I am definitely coming back uh, to this next year. This has been an awesome event. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. Um I've only been to Porkfest once. Yeah. And I've heard that it was like one of the one of the like not great years to go anyway that sure. kind of had had bad luck. Um that like other previous years it's been cooler. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but I, I like this one better. Um you know, maybe if I'd gone to Porkfest a, a long time ago it would have been cooler, but I I like the fact that it's a smaller event here. Um, the, it's, it's more, it's more personal. I, I, I don't know. It just, I guess my personality, it's easier for, for me to, uh, interact with a smaller total number of people, I guess. It's less overwhelming for an introvert. To, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, yeah, that, that's what I was kind of fishing around for. Um, oh, every two hours I just split and go. Uh, I usually go stand on the picnic table. For some reason, I don't know, it feels feels right to stand on a picnic table in front of my cabin just by yeah. myself for 20 minutes, and then I'm good, I'm recharged, and I can come back. Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, and part of it was because I was up up too late uh, recording and, and imbibing with Lou last night, but um, before a, a my- A drunk th- history? Yeah. What did I, you guys talk about? I don't remember, <laughs> so, which means it, it's it's the real deal. Um, yeah, and combine that with the fact that I, I, I'm old now and, and I don't stay up till three in the morning very often anymore. Right. So that, that just makes things worse. But, um, I ended up before my talk today, uh, I actually, I laid on my back on the picnic table by the pavilion mm-hmm. and I just, I just did, um, meditation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. lying on my back, eyes closed. Right. Um, uh, I was lucky it was not raining at that point as it was a little bit later. Uh-huh. I need that kind of stuff too. So I know exactly what you're talking about where, where periodically you, you need a break just from the constant socialization. Not that there's anything wrong with any other people. They're, they're all great people. Oh, of course. But yeah, yeah. If you're, yeah. if you're, if you're, the, if you're this type of personality, you just, you know, need little breaks. Absolutely. I do feel like I could just walk up to any group of people that have kind of gathered together and insert myself into oh, yeah. their conversation. I felt totally comfortable just going absolutely yep. anywhere and saying, hi, my name's Brett. And, yeah. 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 I've, I've, yeah. I've had so many, you know, interesting conversations, you know, some with people that I remember from two years ago and then, but new people as well. A lot of interesting stories, a lot of interesting backgrounds. Yeah. People are doing interesting things. Have a know. lot of fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's fun to just, you know, get with a group of people and get kind of silly. Yep. Uh, like we did last night, we did the, uh, the, the round table thing they do. 
uh, it was a train wreck of a show, but I had a great time doing it. It was yeah. wonderful. But I was thinking that this conversation is kind of an introduction of your work to my for, for my audience, right? Even though we probably do have some overlap. But there's yep. probably lots of conversations that we could have if we focused in on specific things. And I'd love to have you back on the show to do that in the near future. There's so yep. many, there's, I, I think, so many topics in history, even just American history, where we feel similarly. But mm-hmm. I'd really like to showcase the depth of your knowledge on some of these topics uh, to my audience. So I hope we can work together in the future. But uh, yeah, this that, has been a great that conversation. That sounds great. That sounds great. I guess we'll Skype. Indeed, indeed. I guess we will. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what's your website? Website is dangeroushistorypodcast.com. Awesome. Um, and that'll that'll get you to just kind of the homepage. And yeah, the podcast is Dangerous History. Um, it's available wherever you like to get your podcasts. Do you want people to start at the beginning or how do you, uh, what do you suggest? Um, no, actually, in my, my earliest episodes are now behind my Patreon paywall. Yep, yep. I, I did that move. But no, I, I would say... Go to – I've got a page that just lists all the episodes, mm-hmm. and I would say scroll down that thing and look for what topics you're interested in. Yeah. And if, there, if there's something that grabs you or if there's a topic like right off the bat you're interested in, um, I'm nearing the end of the Civil War right now. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's just really into Civil War um, and they want to get like a more full picture of it than you normally get, go with that. I've done American Revolution. I did a long multi-part history on slavery a while ago. Um Lots of different stuff, even a few ancient and medieval topics every now and then. Right. You know, it's more modern, but I like to I like to mix it up uh, and do different stuff. So yeah, just uh, go with whatever you're interested in. Take advantage of the fact that this is not a coercive curricula situation. Indeed, where right. I am going to dictate you must do these things this way in this order. And by all means, if you try my show and hate it. Don't listen to it anymore. (laughs) You'll be happier. I'll be happier. Everybody's better off. CJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. It's been really cool to meet you. And I just want to say thanks again to Brett for having me on School Sucks. It was really cool uh, to meet him in person and have a nice long conversation and do so on the record. And again, to any of you who are listeners to my show who are not familiar with School Sucks, get over there ASAP and check it out. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangeroushistorypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best 
most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.